Open your Bible to Romans chapter 12 and uh, get to verse 13. I want to remind you of a story um, to use as a point. Um, Jesus told many parables. In Matthew chapter 13, he told probably one of the most uh, famous or most familiar ones that we know of. The crowds are pressing in on Jesus. He's got something to say, so he gets in a boat and he pushes offshore, and they're kind of in that natural amphitheater. He begins to speak across the waters and up the hill, okay? And this is the story that he told. This parable is a story used to illustrate spiritual truth. He talked about the seed and the sower. Do you remember this parable? That a farmer goes out and he broadcasts seed. Not the precision of planting, but just the broadcasting. And so seed lands everywhere. And Jesus mentions four different soils the seed lands on. It lands on the pathway, the the crushed down hard rock uh, pathway, and the birds come and steal the seed away. And then, of course, the shallow soil or the rocky soil where it germinates quickly, and then the sun comes up and scorches the plant. And then we have the the weedy soil where the weeds choke out the plant, and the good soil. Remember that, that parable? I'm going to use the first soil to make a point about all of the, the particulars of these commands that we've been reading. Jesus interprets for us what, it's, what it means for the birds to come and steal the seed off, off the pathway. He says that's what it's like for people who hear and not understand what they hear, and Satan comes and steals the truth before it can germinate. Okay, get that in your mind? The reason why I bring that up and use it as a kind of a kickoff to our discussion is I think in this particular section of Scripture where we're getting so many imperatives and commands from Paul, like really pragmatic stuff, that this is a classic place for Satan to come and steal away the truth before we understand it and, and, and really embrace it and do it the way God intends. And here's what I mean by that. When you give a bunch of sinners commands... And some of them, and to be, to be fair, even now the list that we're getting into starts to expose us and reveal us a little bit more um, coming up short every time we pick up one of these things. The classic way in which Satan tells us to respond to these things is with guilt, right? Haven't you ever felt that when you're reading a passage and it totally turns the lights on some area of neglect in your life and oh, I probably should be doing that. And I feel bad, and off you go to make a list or do some task to, to fix the, the, that spot in your life. Well, that would be what I would call a way that Satan gets the glory and not God. And so these passages reveal us, but they were never meant to be responded with guilt. Guilt is not a tool that, that God uses. We, we've said it before um, Many, many times, Paul started chapter 12, verse 1, before he even gets to the imperatives. He says, do these in view of what? The mercies of God. There's only one reason to do anything as a believer, because God is good, and God is great, and God is worthy, and he has done much for us as sinners who at one point in our time in our life were outside of the kingdom of God, destined for hell and damnation, and God, because of his rich mercy, made us alive in Christ, right? That's why we do what we do. So before we add any more imperatives, before we add any more commands, we have to remember that what Satan wants to do right now, where you come up short, is to make you respond with guilt. And I want you to hear today, maybe you've heard it before, I want you to hear that guilt isn't the gospel. All it will do is condemn you more. Because here's what guilt is saying underneath the surface. I can fix it. I can make it better. 
God will be happy. And that's not why Paul is giving us these imperatives. He's saying everything flows from a perspective that God has done so much for us that we are a wholly transformed people already. Everything's in reflection to his goodness. Make sense? Some of you, make sense? Come on now. Um, so the guilt, guilt is not the gospel. It is not love. Guilt does not honor God, right? Not at all. Love honors God. That's why we said Matthew 22, we reminded you every week that here's what Jesus asked. Here's what the Lord asked of us, of all of us, to just give him everything we got, heart, soul, mind, and strength because of his great goodness to us. And so before we add any more imperatives to our life, let's just make a promise to each other. We're not going to respond to these in guilt. Let's just say it. We're not going to do this in guilt. And uh, by God's grace, we will react to these in view of his mercy. Amen? Let's pray for that. Pray for his help. God, we thank you for the uh, grace that we've received by faith in Christ Jesus, our Lord. We're thankful that nothing can separate us from his love. Nothing can bring a judgment against us. Nothing can condemn us. Thank you, God, that your, your work in, in our Savior's life for us on our behalf made for us holiness, transformed us, changed the relationship between you and us from sinners at war to sons and daughters of the King. God, help us see every time, every time the scriptures say, this is what the church should be about, it always looks through the lens of grace. And help us to see that so what comes out of us is truly just loving you, heart, soul, mind, and strength. So I pray for that in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Verse 13. Two simple phrases. And by the way, I just, I, I encourage you, we are not going to take it verse by verse very much longer, otherwise I will have to retire. We are going to pick up the pace um, next week and start plowing through the rest of Romans. But right now, in this small section, we really felt it was important to kind of hunker down in some of these particulars to, to really let the Holy Spirit work on us. So just to encourage you, we're going to move up the pace here pretty quick. But verse 13, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. So here's Paul just continuing his thought of what it is to love God and love others, right? That's all he's trying to do. And he's adding a list of things of what love looks like. And this is what he says in the first phrase of verse 13. Real love is, gen is generous to believers, okay? Contributing to the needs of the saints is just real love is, is generous to believers. Let me show you an example of that in Acts chapter 2. This is... Uh, the writer describing what the church was like. When the lights came on and grace was received and Jesus was Lord, this is how they behaved. Not to be loved, but it was a natural reaction. Verse 44 of chapter 2 of Acts. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Right there is a historical perspective of this command of how the church needs to act in lieu of the gospel, okay? A couple observations of verse 13. Paul says, contribute to the needs of the saint. Now, this is very important. You have to understand the early church had needs, 
really different than us. It's hard to contextualize this in our, in our generation. Not to say you don't have needs, but in their day, following Christ meant you'd probably lose your family, meaning you'd be shunned for tr- trusting in Christ. You'd probably lose whatever job you had because you, now Christian, have now put yourself in opposition to the Jewish laws, and so you'd maybe lose your job, possibly your home if you were renting. So these people needed real things, food, shelter, and relationships, right? And so it's hard to contextualize. We can't necessarily draw the line over to, you know, what we see today about yard work and cars and cell phones. Those aren't needs. These are needs, legitimate needs for relationship and uh, care. Second thing I want you to, to, to be aware of is that Paul is not denying in this passage the need to be um, generous to the world or to care for the needs of those who don't know Jesus. What he's talking about here is the priority of believers caring for believers. Understood? It's the priority structure of giving. He said it in Galatians chapter 6, verse 10, this way. He said, so then, as we have, have an opportunity to let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Now, that theme of priority in giving and generosity for Paul has always been expressed in his writings. In fact, when he's talking about how, how men should care for their homes, he put it this way in 1 Timothy chapter 5. He says, if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for members of his own household, he's denied the faith and he's worse than an unbeliever. Paul has a theme in generosity. It works from the center out. It always does. There's a priority structure in our giving. And that's the way it's supposed to be. And tragically today, um, this is under assault. There there are people who say, I don't give to the church. And here's why I don't give to the church. There are things that are more important. I get maybe why you see that, but you're going against the the clear depiction of what Paul says is the way a believer responds in his generosity, inside out, family out, believers out. That's how it's supposed to to be. And people make that assessment because they look in and say, well, the, the church has more than enough. So I'm going to go meet needs. Now, I'm not suggesting that meeting other needs isn't good and right and true. I'm just telling you that what Paul is saying here is specifically the, the, the uh, preeminence of the care for one another's first. Make sense? Just the order structure of how we, how we give and meet needs. So, believers care for the church. That's the priority of Paul. It's supposed to be the priority of, of believers contributing to the needs of the saints. Now, let me give you what I call four guardrails to keep us in line in a biblical understanding of, of right generosity. So we, we clearly get this. Here's the first guardrail. Generosity has always been and will always be a reflection of God's generosity towards us. Understood? This is simply the overflow of what we've received. Paul puts it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for our sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. You see that wonderful twist? The riches whoever was became poor to bring to poor people what we couldn't get anywhere else, and that is the riches of the kingdom. And in view of that truth and that grace and that salvation, we look like daddy. We reflect it. We give it away. It's the core motivation for giving. It's out of love because he gives to us. Let me ask you to just consider your own life. Have you ever given for the wrong reasons? Most people I know who actually live long enough to have a lot of experience in giving have made a lot of mistakes in giving. One of the ways you see out there that people give is they give out of pride. Sounds weird, but they do. 
They want their name on a brick somewhere. They, they want to matter. They want to have influence. They want to get to the center table. And so they give out of pride. Some, some people give out of guilt, like we've talked about already. I just feel bad. I mean, I, I, I'm just going to do it because I don't want to feel bad anymore. Some people, and this is strange, some people give out of greed because there's, a, there's another kind of perpetrated message going on in the, and I use this big phrase, big church world, that what, what happens um, in this sequence of gen- generosity, if you give a little bit, God's going to overflow you with money. Like, it's seed money, so just give a little bit and God will make you rich. And so some of the reasons why people get involved in giving is so that they can be rich, which is ultimately greed, and God would not fan that flame. There's lots of bad reasons why, why people give. I just want to make sure you understand this. The gospel, that God saves sinners who don't deserve it, that is the impetus behind all giving and generosity, right? I mean, think about the sequence of it. Us at war with God, destined to hell and damnation forever and ever and ever. Jesus leaves heaven, comes to the earth, take on flesh, to die in our place, to satisfy himself for our sins. And he lavishes on us his sonship and, and his family and the, and the riches of the kingdom. That's why we care and that's why we give. Because he gave everything for us, right? Gospel is the only reason to motivate proper giving. Let me give you another guardrail to giving. Generosity is a joy, not a duty. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7, Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. How do you feel about giving? If you're honest, how does it feel to give? Are you thankful for the privilege that you get to? You get invited into contributing um, to the needs of others? Now, don't misunderstand me, okay? Don't hear me say that if you don't feel like it and it doesn't make you happy, that don't bother giving. That's okay. Just sit this one out. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm suggesting to you is like every other command, there is no excuse for disobedience. But what God wants in our obedience is our heart. That's what he wants. He wants our affections, right? He wants us to love him with everything that we've got. And so generosity is a joy when the giver... The, the receiver, in other words, us, who receive what God has given are overwhelmed and overflowing with the gift that we've received. Make sense? It just can't, we just can't help ourselves. We've been given so much. And so therefore, the reflection of it is I have the privilege to contribute. I have the privilege to be generous. I get to give. Can you believe that? Where at one point in time, I was against the kingdom of God. Now I'm helping the kingdom of God and stewarding his resources. A totally different perspective. There's joy in that for us. That's guardrail number two. Here's guardrail number three. Generosity is planned, not impulsive. Generosity is planned, not impulsive. Here's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 16, verses 1 and 2. Concerning the collection, speaking of money and raising money, for the saints, as I directed the churches in Galatia, so you also are to do. And this is what he says. On the first day of every week, each one of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. Generosity is plant. Um, you plan to give. You think about it. You sort it out. In fact, what Paul wants the church to do is be intentional and systematic and disciplined givers. And here's what you know, and you know this is true from your own life. Spontaneous giving typically isn't generous, is it? 
not radical. It's like me driving down the road. Every corner that I see in Arizona, there's somebody holding a sign. And typically, I'm not thinking about anything. I'm listening to the radio or, or have my mind's on a meeting or something else. And I see somebody, I go, oh, what, what do I have? And I pull out whatever I have when I feel like it, right? That's typically what it's like to be a spontaneous giver. And I'm not saying that's wrong. Please don't hear me say you shouldn't do that. All I'm saying is what Paul suggests about giving, real giving, obedient Christian giving, in lieu of the gospel kind of giving, is a planned giving, a disciplined giving, an intentional kind of giving, okay? In other words, we have the responsibility to be thoughtful and determined about it. Make sense? Okay. Here is the uh, last guardrail in giving. Generosity happens when we live small in view of the kingdom of God. Generosity can happen when we live small in view of the kingdom of God. Here's what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 21. Do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You've heard that passage before, right? Jesus is encouraging us not to waste our time trying to save and store here because you can't take it with you. I already read to you that 1 Corinthians passage where Paul is instructing the church to collect on the first day of the week as he may prosper. So let me give you the flow of this kind of generous giving. Okay, as God gives you more than you need, more than you have to have, he suggests, Jesus suggests, don't store it up here, store it up in heaven, right, and give more. That's the sequence of giving, biblically. Randy Elkhorn in a book, Treasure Principle, has this phrase to kind of describe this, and it goes like this. God gives us more, not so that we can raise our standard of living, so that we can raise our standard of giving. That's why God gives much to us because we are channels of his grace in this world and we simply steward what he gives. So if you really wanted to make a charge against the American church, you could point and shoot at this one all day long. You you could make all sorts of accusations because most of the American church lives great and gives poor. And I'm not saying I know you or your story or how you give. You could be the exception to the rule. You could be the example for all of us. I'm just saying, generally speaking, the American church who sits under the grace that God provides for salvation, not only of our sins now, but eternity in the future, lives great and gives poor. That's that's the accusation. I know of Christians in my past, leaders, people who serve and teach, who don't give a dime. Not one dime. And I'm not exaggerating. And I'm not trying to make you feel bad. I'm just trying to say, if you say you've received much and you don't participate in the kingdom, there's something disconnected there, right? I'm asking you to evaluate that. So if any of these things kind of ring in your heart, as they probably do, and they do in my own, then we probably ought to ask God, how do we, how do we change our perspective? If, if generosity for saved people is so important to Paul, it's one of the authenticating marks of a Christian, how do I get it better? How do I move on, okay? Let me, let me give you a couple things to think about. Simply change your perspective on what you have and remind yourself that everything that you have is yours. It doesn't belong to you. You're simply the manager, Just like the the till at the store of which you work and you care for the owner's possessions and his product, that money in the till is not yours. 
And the money in your pockets and the check that you come home with, according to God and the scriptures, is not yours. You're simply a steward of it. Haggai chapter 2, verse 8. Here's what the scriptures say. God says this, the silver's mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord. Deuteronomy 10, behold to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of the heavens and the earth and all that's in it. Job 41, God says, who has given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole of heaven is mine. Are we confused at all what belongs to who? I hope not. Everything's his. The clothes on your back, the car you drove in, the house you're going to go home to, the pot roast in the cooker is his. It's all his. The money you get and the job you have and how you manage it, that's his. So if you want to change your perspective on generosity and be able to contribute to the needs of the saints, then simply tell yourself all the time, it's not mine. It's not mine. I'm, I'm a steward of it, okay? Second thing, if you want to change your perspective on generosity... View your job not as a way to spend, but as a way to give. View your job as a way to, to, a way to give, not to spend. The American dream, and I, I have lived it my whole life, um, is always moving up. Always moving up. Bigger and better. More stuff. That's what we do with the extra. And I'm just encouraging you, and I think what the scriptures say here, ask God to allow you to see the extra as a way to give to contribute to the needs of the saints. Not a way to expand your standard of living. When you have more than you need, ask God to open your hands. Ask him to open your hands. Here's a third thing we can do if we want to change our perspective on being able to contribute to the needs of the saints. Fight the sin of greed. Greed, it's a problem. Here's what Jesus said in Luke 12. He warned us to be on guard against greed. Paul said in Colossians 3, he called it a sin that we're supposed to daily put to death. Greed is a problem daily. We need to kill that thing. Greed's an issue. So how do you fight greed? One word, be content. I guess that's two words if you're technical. <laughs> be content. Tell yourself, really practice this. Practice this. It's enough. It's enough. It's good enough. Just tell yourself, it's good enough. I don't need more. Just try it. Hebrews chapter 13, the writer says, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. What makes us hoard is doubting whether God will supply. Right? What makes us store up what makes us hold on, what keeps us from generosity, what keeps us from contributing to the needs of saints, what keeps us holding on to the extra is because we're not certain that God's promise will come true, that he isn't going to be, he won't keep his word. He might leave me. He might forsake me. He might not meet my needs, and that's ridiculous. God can't go back on his word, right? So tell yourself, here's the fourth thing you could do practically Get out of debt. Sounded easy, right? Get, get out of debt. You can't be generous if you're in debt. And by the way, this last one we talked about, greed. Greed and debt go hand in hand, right? Greed tells you you got to have it. Debt says, I'll buy it. Right? That's how this goes. And suddenly, without thinking what you thought, what Greg told you you needed to have, you got now credit cards full of things that weren't really God saying you had a need, but little greed talking to you. 
and you're buried under enormous amounts of debt, what keeps you from being able to run right into this passage and be open-handed and contributing to the needs of, of the saints, right? So make a plan to get out of debt. There are people, there are men here who would help you do that. We, in fact, we've, we're talking about classes um, here at Gilbert, and we're going to roll this out in the next uh, several months, but one of the classes we're going to offer every semester is a class on financial stewardship, and so we want you to be aware of that. But if you need, like, real practical help to sort that out, we want to be able to help you. But getting out of debt will free you up to be contributing to the needs, right? Um, one other thing. If you want to get your mind right on this, start, start giving faithfully. Don't use, don't use your debt as a reason not to give. Now, let me tell you what this means, okay? If you're going to learn what it is to follow this commandment honestly, then just make a decision every week that whatever God supplies, he'll get the first of. I'm not telling you how much. I'm just saying develop the habit of saying it's God's, so God gets first. It's God's, so I'm going to ask God what he wants to do with these things first. The second thing I would tell you to do, just make that commitment. Don't be afraid of putting a line in the sand and saying, starting right now, I'm in. And then I would suggest to you, and this is probably for, for some of us who are outside of faithful stewardship and we haven't done this very well, be a percentage giver. Get in the game. Get in the game. Now, I know you've heard and probably have, uh, at least believed that God expects 10 plus and whatever. I'm not telling you even that. I'm not even saying that. I'm just suggesting you pick a percent, own it, love it, do it, and every year ask God to move it up. That's it. So if you're not giving at all, just say, okay, God, I'm going to give you 1%. I'm buried under debt. I've been disobedient. I haven't given it to you, but I'm not going to wonder if you're going to provide. I'm just going to, I'm going to move and I'm going to give, Okay. So just be, be generous to God first and commit to it. Be percentage giver. Start someplace. So let's make some admissions before we move on to the second phrase of verse 13. Committing to, uh, uh, contributing to the needs of saints is a command, correct? See it? Okay. Contributing at the level of, of being generous is the heart of the command, Correct? We have two things. One is I'm, I'm doing it and I need to be generous. Generous is the heart. Doing it is the command. So real love is generous, generous to believers. Here's the second phrase Paul says. And seek to show hospitality. Seek to show hospitality. Real love is, is hospitable. Are, are you aware that one of the things that Jesus counts on judgment day as evidence of our love for him is how hospitable we are to others? Did you know that? Now, I told you before that when we're getting to these imperatives, some of these things are going to expose me. This is one of those things where I, I probably don't do very well. I mean, in my mind, I think I'm hospitable. <laughs> but I don't jump into this stuff. There's always a reason not to. But here's what, here's what Jesus said in, in chapter 25 of Matthew, verses 31 through 40. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he'll separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, believers from unbelievers. And he will place the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. The king will say to those on his right, come, you are blessed by my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. And I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when, when did we see you hungry and feed you or, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? 
And when do we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it unto me. Are you aware that one of the authenticating marks of a true believer, the evidences that Jesus will examine in the future will be how we are hospitable to one another? The writer of Hebrews says, um, don't neglect hospitality to strangers. 1 Peter 4, Peter says, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Back to verse 13, the word seek in the ESV is is really the word pursue. In other words, this isn't sit back and wait for hospitality to find you. It's get in the game to chase it. Pursue it on your own. Go after hospitality. Invite it in. So, if the command is so clear and so blatant and kind of blunt force trauma, why wouldn't anybody just do this? I stole some of this from Piper, who suggests there's, there's one of the reasons why people uh, don't just obey the, the command to be hospitable is some people are oblivious. They never thought about it being part of the Christian life or that Jesus would really care about it or that it's that important on the structure. They just kind of don't think about it. Another way in which we kind of avoid this is we're just careless with it. We know what it says. We just don't make time to have it happen. You know, like we mean well, just don't plan well. And so it's careless response to the instructions of, of God. The other reason why we don't see this happen in our life is fear. You know? It's going to take too much time. It's so hard. I mean, they're going to come over to my house and they're going to open that closet. You know that closet? That's going to be embarrassing. I don't want that. Or you're just the opposite. Your house is pristine and they could mess it up. I don't want people messing up my house, so they're not getting in. Um, and what if they're weird? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like you sit to have a conversation and there's these awkward, awkward pauses and you don't know how to do it and you're not that good and that relationship. And so it's just weird. So avoid the weirdness altogether. Just don't be hospitable. There are lots of reasons why we would say I'm not in the game with the things that matter to God. Somehow, somehow, our open-handedness and our lives opened up for others pleases the heart of God and looks like the gospel of Christ for us. We can't keep saying we're careless with it anymore, and we can't keep saying that uh, I'm afraid of it. But like all other commands that Paul gives, you can't, I can't, we can't afford to be legalistic with this. You can't run out of here and start filling up your day timer with appointments because you feel bad that you haven't been hospitable. The gospel, again, is the only reason that we should be. Every other reason is a serious waste of time. Piper puts it this way. I strongly resist the temptation to justify any action, including hospitality, just because it's part of the so-called Judeo-Christian ethic. When you consider the tiny length of time that we live on this earth and the infinite length of time that we will live in heaven or hell, what you have achieved of any significant value when you mobilize people to affirm a tradition of morality and don't make them new creatures in Christ. What have you done? Will they praise us for an eternity in hell because we've helped them live healthy, successful, hospitable lives for 50 years that are gone faster than fireworks at 4th of July? The only ethics and the only morality that have any eternal value are ethics and morality that are shaped by God's will, performed by God's power, and aimed at God's glory through Jesus Christ. On the scales of eternity, morality without Jesus Christ is lighter than air. Does that make sense? It's, it's pointless. 
It has no depth and no weight to it if we're just doing things to make, make people good. This is a reflection of the goodness of God. The ultimate act of hospitality, what drives us, what motivates us is the ultimate act of hospitality ever that outsiders like us who were at war with God were invited in and called sons and daughters who got everything the king had to offer. That's what changes us. It's what Paul said in Ephesians 1. He predestined us and adopted us as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will for the praise of his glorious grace. That's what moves us. That's what drives us because of God's hospitality towards us. Doesn't the fact that God received you in when you were not his move you? While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Does it move you? Yet on your own, you wouldn't perceive truth, wouldn't want truth, and wouldn't want him, and yet he made a way for us. Does that move you? I'll just wait. Some of you? Does it, does it move you? Doesn't the fact that he lavished on you, he didn't hold anything back, he says, all of it, all of it is yours, my kingdom is yours, does that move you? It should move us. That's why we're hospitable. We reflect the Father. We enjoy him by enjoying what he loves. That's what we do. That's the best way to say I love you, Jesus, because I love what you love. I'm into what you're into. I care about who you care about, and I do it the way you do it. That's, that's what we do. So if you want to be practical about hospitality, it's really, really deep. Invite somebody over. <laughs> as scary as that proposition is, just do it. If you want even more practical, like this moment we call church, this family time that we have every week, we could do better here. I mean, some of us, and I'm not judging you, some of, it's a big church, it's hard to know anybody, it's, it's kind of maybe intimidating at some point in time, but some of us just come in, head down, get it done, you know, I got an hour and 15, I'm out of here. Can I just suggest to you that there are people who are strangers here now, and we could reach out to them so easily right now. I would suggest to you a couple of techniques to use, come early, stay late. Some of you come late and leave early, that's wrong. I mean, I'm not taking notes, but I see it, okay? If you came early, you might be able to see someone who's new and say, who are you? I'm so-and-so. It's glad to have you here. You could do that if you just were a little bit more strategic. You could stay late and say, hey, would you like to get coffee? And run over to the commons and just sit down and give yourself away. If you were more strategic about hospitality, we could be hospitable here, couldn't we? And by the way, I think we do pretty good, but I still don't want to give you a pass. We could do more. I swear to you, there are people who have, had, have gotten the wrong impression about us because we were too busy. Agreed? So those are some practical steps. Now let me give you the reward. If you want the ultimate reason, the ultimate reason to be generous to God's people and to be hospitable to God's people, then, then you need to get your arms around this. Somewhere in this grand scope of things, how God has wired this to work, you will be the agent of change in someone's life. Somebody's need's going to be met. If you're open-handed and living small in view of the kingdom and you're giving uh, consistently, intentionally, then somebody's need's going to get met and God will get the glory. That's worth it, right? But that's not all. God's glory goes on display. This whole thing is about God, right? This whole thing is about God's greatness. The fact that he wraps, wraps grace around sinners 
screams the greatness of God's grace. It's all about that. It goes on display. Jesus said, let your light shine so before men that they will see your good deeds and glorify your Father who is in heaven. That's why we do these things so that God is made much of. But that's not all. How about this? It's confirmation of our love for him. I'm not saying it makes you saved. There isn't any work that you have to do to be saved other than faith in Christ alone, period. But there are several things that we do that the Holy Spirit uses to say, you're mine, I'm giving you assurance, I'm giving you assurance, I'm giving you assurance in spite of your struggles, in spite of your shortcomings, I'm giving you assurance. If we step into this thing, these really pragmatic things, then there's another way in which we're confirmed by his love. And then, of course, what Jesus said in Luke 12, you're storing up for yourself treasures in heaven. <laughs> treasures in heaven. I had a conversation this last week with, um, with a friend, and we were talking about what, are the get, what do we do now? How, what's the judgment in the future going to be like for the church? And I tried to reassure them that... Um, you're never have to going to go under the, the weight of God's condemnation for your sin. But there is going to be this experience for the church where God evaluates the things that we did as a Christian that we said were for him and his glory. So in other words, everything post your conversion, you have by confession in Christ said, this is for your glory, okay? Whether you're saying everything is or not, but you are living now for his glory, agreed? All the judgment for the believers is going to be in heaven one day is every one of those things that we have done for his glory his glory, will be evaluated for their authenticity. Because God will not share his glory with another. And here's what happens. It's happened to me and it probably happens to you. There are many times I do good things for the wrong reasons. Right? Lots of times I just, you know, it looks right, but it's coming from the wrong spot. All I'm saying is when we get to heaven and God takes out that gift that I said was all for him, and he looks at it, he's going to go, you know, Tim, that thing, you had everybody convinced that was for me. It was really for you suffer loss. At the moment, it's most crystal for a believer that he's the king of glory and he deserves everything and I'm beyond the ability to bring it to him. All of my life has been lived and I'm standing before him. He will evaluate all the pieces and only the real, authentic, true gifts to God last. And I know this, I regret it already. There's a pile of things somewhere that won't get there because I did it for the wrong reasons. I'm telling you, church, if we love him much because of grace, then when you get to heaven, there'll be this treasure trove of reward you can offer back to him for his glory and his majesty. Is that worth it? I think so. It is to me. Let's pray and ask for God's help. Father God, I thank you for... Uh, how pragmatic and practical these passages are. They almost sound as if Paul is saying these are, these are obvious responses to grace given. But we confess that sin is so pervasive and we are so selfish still that some of these things that are so obvious aren't lived out, at least in my own life. God, I pray for us. I pray for us that we would fall so much in love with your gospel, so aware of the grace that saved us and covers us daily, that what comes out of us are these things. To be consistent in prayer, to be um, joyous in hope, 
to bear up under tribulation, to be generous to the needs of the body and to, to constantly be hospitable. Those things, those really practical things are all reflections of what you've done for us. God, help everything to come as a result of the gospel. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.